Chapter Ten of the Eyes of the World by Harold Bell Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Ten: A Cry in the Night. As Conrad Lagrange and Mister Rutledge entered the studio, Aaron King turned from the easel where he had drawn the velvet curtain to hide the finished portrait. Mrs. Taine was standing at the other side of the room, wrap in hand, calmly waiting, ready to go. The artist greeted Mr. Rutledge cordially, while the woman triumphantly announced the completion of her portrait. "'Ah, permit me to congratulate you, old man,' said Rutledge, addressing the artist familiarly. "'It is too much, I suppose, to expect to look at it this afternoon?' "'Thanks,' replied the artist. "'You are all coming tomorrow at three, you know. I would rather not show it today. It is a little late for the best light, and I would like for you to see it under the most favorable conditions possible.' The critic was visibly flattered by the painter's manner and by his well-chosen emphasis upon the personal pronoun. "'Quite right,' he said approvingly. "'Quite right, old boy.' He turned to the novelist. "'These painter chaps, you know, Lagrange, like to have a few hours for a last touch or two before I come around.' He laughed pompously at his own words, the others joining. When Mrs. Taine and her companions were gone, the artist said hurriedly to his friend, "'Come on, let's get it over.' he led the way back to the studio. "'I thought the light was too bad,' said the older man, quizzingly, as they entered the big room. "'It's good enough for your needs,' retorted the painter savagely. "'You could see all you want by candlelight.' He jerked the curtain angrily aside and, without a glance at the canvas, walked away to stand at the window, looking out upon the rose garden, waiting for the flood of the novelist's scorn to overwhelm him. At last, when no sound broke the quiet of the room, he turned to find himself alone. Conrad Lagrange, after one look at the portrait on the easel, had slipped quietly out of the building. The artist found his friend a few minutes later, meditatively smoking his pipe on the front porch, with Czar lying at his feet. Well, said the painter curiously, anxious as he had said to have it over, why the deuce don't you say something? The novelist answered slowly, my vocabulary is too limited for one reason and he looked thoughtfully down at czar i prefer to wait until you have finished the portrait it is finished returned the artist desperately i swear i'll never touch a brush to the damn thing again the man with the pipe spoke to the dog at his feet listen to him czar listen to the poor devil of a painter man the dog arose and placing his head upon his master's knee looked up into the lined and rugged face as the novelist continued if he was only a wee bit puffed up and cocky over the thing now we could exert ourselves so we could couldn't we czar slowly waved a feathery tail in dignified approval his master continued but when a fellow can do a crime like that and still retain enough virtue in his heart to hear his work shrieking to heaven its curses upon him for calling it into existence it's best for outsiders to keep quite still your poor old master knows whereof he speaks doesn't he dog that he does. And is that all you have to say on the subject? demanded the artist, as though for some reason he was disappointed at his friend's reticence. I might add a word of advice, said the other. Well, what is it? That you pray your gods, if you have any, to be merciful and bestow upon you either less genius or more intelligence to appreciate it. At three o'clock the following afternoon, the little party from Fairlands Heights came to view the portrait or as Conrad Lagrange said, while the automobile was approaching the house, 
well, here they come. The age, accompanied by materialism, sensual and ragtime, to look upon the prostitution of art and call it good. Escorted by the artist and the novelist, they went at once to the studio. The appreciation of the picture was instantaneous, so instantaneous, in fact, that Louise Taine's lips were shaped to deliver an expressive oh of admiration even before the portrait was revealed. As though the painter, in drawing back the easel curtain, gave an appointed signal, that oh was set off with the suddenness of a skyrocket's rush, and was accompanied in its flight by a great volume of sizzling, sputtering, glittering, agitival sparks that, filling the air to no purpose whatever, winked out as they were born, the climax of the pyrotechnical display being reached in the explosive pop of another O, which released a brilliant shower of variegated sighs and moans and ecstatic looks and inarticulate exclamations, ending, of course, in total darkness. Mrs. Taine hastened to turn the artist's embarrassed attention to an appreciation that had the appearance at least of a more enduring value. Drawing with affectionate solicitude close to her husband, she asked, in a voice that was tremulous with loving care and anxiety to please, "'Do you like it, dear?' "'It is magnificent, splendid, perfect.' This effort to give his praise of the artist's work, the appearance of substantial reality cost the wretched product of lust and luxury, a fit of coughing that racked his burnout body almost to its last feeble hold upon the world of flesh, and, with a force that shamed the strength of his words, drove home the truth that neither his praise nor his scorn could long endure. When he could again speak, he said, in his husky, rasping voice, while grasping the painter's hand in effusive cordiality, "'My dear fellow, I congratulate you. It is exquisite. It will create a sensation, sir, when it is exhibited. Your fame is assured. I must thank you for the honor you have done me in thus immortalizing the beauty and character of Mrs. Taine. And then, to his wife, Dearest, I am glad for you and proud. It is as worthy of you as paint and canvas could be. He turned to Conrad Lagrange, who was an interested observer of the scene. Am I not right, Lagrange? Quite right, Mr. Taine, quite right. As you say, the portrait is most worthy the beauty and character of the charming subject. Another paroxysm of coughing mercifully prevented the poor creature's reply. With one accord the little group turned now to James Rutledge the dreaded authority and arbiter of artistic destinies. That distinguished expert, while the others were speaking, had been listening intently, ostensibly the while he examined the picture with a show of trained skill that, it seemed, could not fail to detect unerringly those more subtle values and defects that are popularly supposed to be hidden from the common eye. Silently and breathless awe, they watched the process by which professional criticism finds its verdict that is, they thought they were watching the process. In reality the method is more subtle than they knew. While the great critic moved back and forth in front of the easel, drew away from or bent over to closely scrutinize the canvas, shifted the easel a hairbreadth several times, sat down, stood erect, hummed and muttered to himself abstractedly, cleared his throat with an impressive ahem, squinted through nearly closed eyes with his head thrown back, or turned in every side angle his fat neck would permit, peered through his half-closed fist, peeped through funnels of paper, sighted over and under his open hand or a paper held to shut out portions of the painting. The others thought they saw him expertly weighing the evidence for and against the merit of the work. In reality it was his ears, 
and not his eyes that helped the critic to his final decision, a decision which was delivered at last with a convincing air of ponderous finality. Indeed, it was a judgment from which there could be no appeal, for it expressed exactly the views of those for whose benefit it was rendered. Then, in a manner subtly insinuating himself into the fellowship of the famous, he, too, turned to Conrad Lagrange with a scholarly, "'Do you not agree, sir?' The novelist answered with slow impressiveness. "'The picture, undoubtedly, fully merits the appreciation and praise you have given it. I have already congratulated Mr. King, who was kind enough to show me his work, before you arrived.' After this Yi Ki appeared upon the scene, and tea was served in the studio, a fitting ceremony to the launching of another genius. "'By the way, Mr. Lagrange,' said Mrs. Taine quite casually, when under the influence of the mildly stimulating beverage, the talk had assumed a more frivolous vein. "'Who is your talented neighbor that so charms Mr. King with the music of a violin?' The novelist, as he turned toward the speaker, shot a quick glance at the artist. Nor did those keen, baffling eyes fail to notice that, at the question, James Rutledge had paused in the middle of a sentence. "'That is one of the mysteries of our romantic surroundings, madam,' said Conrad Lagrange easily. "'And a very charming mystery it seems to be,' returned the woman. "'It has been quite affecting to watch its influence upon Mr. King.' The artist laughed. "'I admit that I have found the music, in combination with the beauty I have so feebly tried to out upon canvas, very stimulating.' A flash of color swept into the perfect cheeks of Mrs. Taine as she retorted with meaning. You are as flattering in your speech as you are with your brush. I assure you I do not consider myself in your unknown musician's class. The small eyes of James Rutledge were fixed inquiringly upon the speakers, while his heavy face betrayed, to the watchful novelist, an interest he could not hide. Is this music of such exceptional merit, he asked, with an attempt at indifference. Louise Taine, sensing that the performances of the unnamed violinist had been acceptable to Conrad Lagrange and Aaron King, the two representatives of the world to which she aspired, could not let the opportunity slip. She fairly deluged them with the spray of her admiring ejaculations in praise of the musician, employing hit or miss every musical term that popped into her vacuous head. Indeed, said the critic, I seem to have missed a treat. Then, directly to the artist, and you say the violinist is wholly unknown to you? Wholly, returned the painter shortly. Conrad Lagrange saw a faint smile of understanding and disbelief flit for an instant over the heavy face of James Rutledge. When the automobile at last was departing with the artist's guests, the two friends stood for a moment watching it up the road to the west toward town. As the big car moved away, they saw Mrs. Taine lead forward to speak to the chauffeur, while James Rutledge, who was in the front seat, turned and shook his head as though in protest. The woman appeared to insist. The machine slowed down as though the chauffeur, in doubt, awaited the outcome of the discussion. Then, just in front of that neighboring house, Rutledge seemed to yield abruptly, and the automobile turned suddenly in toward the curb and stopped. Mrs. Taine alighted and disappeared in the depths of the orange grove. Aaron King and Conrad Lagrange looked at each other for a moment in questioning silence. The artist laughed. "'Our poor little mystery,' he said. But the novelist, as they went toward the house, cursed Mrs. Taine, James Rutledge, and all their kin and kind with a vehement earnestness that startled his companion, familiar as the latter was with his friend's peculiar talent in the art of vigorous expression. 
after dinner that evening the painter and the novelist sat on the porch, as their custom was, to watch the day go out of the sky and the night come over valley and hill and mountain, until, above the highest peaks, the stars of God looked down upon the twinkling lights of the towns of men. At that hour, too, it was the custom now for the violinist hidden in the orange grove to make the music they both so loved. In the music that night there was a feeling that, to them, was new, a vague, uncertain, halting undertone that was born, they felt, of fear. It stirred them to question and to wonder. Without apparent cause or reason, they each oddly connected the troubled tone in the music with the stopping of the automobile from Fairlands Heights that afternoon at the gate of the little house next door. The artist, because of Mrs. Taine's insistent inquiry about the, to him, unknown musician, Conrad Lagrange, because of the manner of the girl in the garden when James Rutledge appeared, and because of the critic's interest when they had spoken of the violinist in the studio, but neither expressed his thought to the other. Presently the music ceased, and they sat for an hour, perhaps, in silence, as close friends may do, exchanging only now and then a word. Suddenly they were startled by a cry. In the still darkness of the night, from the mysterious depths of the orange grove, the sound came with such a shock that the two men for the moment held their places, motionless, questioning each other sharply. What was that? Did you hear? As though they doubted almost their own ears. The cry came again, this time undoubtedly from that neighboring house to the west. It was unmistakably the cry of a woman, a woman in fear and pain. They leaped to their feet. Again the cry came from the black depths of the orange grove, shuddering, horrible, in an agony of fear. The two men sprang from the porch, and through the darkness that in the orange grove was like a black wall, ran toward the spot from which the sound came, the dog at their heels. Breathless they broke into the little yard in the front of the tiny box-like house. Lights shone in the windows. All seemed peaceful and still. Czar betrayed no uneasiness. Going to the front door, they knocked. There was no answer save the sound of someone moving inside. Again the artist knocked vigorously. The door opened, and a woman stood on the threshold. Standing a little to one side, the men saw her features clearly in the light from the room. It was the woman with the disfigured face. Conrad Lagrange was first to command himself. "'I beg your pardon, madam. We live in the house next door. We thought we heard a cry of distress. May we offer our assistance in any way? Is there anything we can do?' "'Thank you, sir. You are very kind,' returned the woman in a low voice. "'But it is nothing. There is nothing you can do.' And the voice of Sybil Andres, who stood farther back in the room, where the artist from his position could not see her, added, "'It was good of you to come, Mr. Lagrange, but it is really nothing. We are so sorry you were disturbed.' "'Not at all,' returned the man, as the woman of the disfigured face drew back from the door. "'Good night.' "'Good night.' came from within the house, and the door was shut. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.